You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this Lord's Day, and I pray that you'll draw our hearts and our minds together even now as we... Um, as we wrestle with your prophets, these voices from so long ago who continue to speak with such authority and power into our current moment. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. Just reminded in a conversation before our class about the power of your word, Lord, in our hearts and our minds. And, and I pray that you will not give us a famine of your word. Anything but that, we pray. And so help the teacher today and those who are here to listen that by the power of your spirit, we, you would help us to perceive and and understand the wonders of your law. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joel is uh, a tiny little book that's nestled in the Minor Prophets right between Hosea and Amos. And Joel's place within the Minor Prophets is a peculiar place. In other words, if we thought about the Minor Prophets as following a, some sort of chronological ordering that moved from, say, the pre-exile... Uh, that would be like the 8th and the 7th century, into the exilic period, 6th century, and then into the post-exile, there's a kind of movement that one can follow through the minor prophets that can, that can find that chronology there. Um, both Hosea and Amos, for example, are older prophets. They're 8th century prophets to the northern kingdom. Now, this might be of interest to you, but this breaks down after Micah. But the first six books of the Minor Prophets, um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, they're also structured this way. I think you might find this interesting. So you have Hosea as a prophet to the northern kingdom. Joel as a prophet to the southern kingdom. Amos as a prophet to the northern kingdom. Um, Obadiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Um, Jonah, northern kingdom. Micah, southern kingdom. So it's kind of interesting, after Micah, that begins to fall apart because now we're on the far side of the exile and we're on the far side, not necessarily the exile, but of the northern kingdom being destroyed. You know this, around 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom so that the infrastructure and the political identity of the northern kingdom of Israel was no longer extant. It was now gone. Um, never to return. This is a fascinating thing. Um, so you think about the northern kingdom with the capital in Samaria. If you trace your Old Testament memory back a little bit, you'll recall that you had Saul, you had David, and then you had Solomon. That was what was referred to as the united monarchy. This is when the whole of the northern and the southern kingdom were together in one, in, in one national unit. And once Saul, Solomon passes off the scene, his two sons have a little... I don't know, a kind of internal civil war, I guess. And uh, Jeroboam goes and establishes his kingdom in the north, and Rehoboam stays there in the south. And after that, now you have a divided, split kingdom. Interestingly enough, in the book of Kings, when it describes the splitting of the northern and the southern kingdom, it speaks about Israel now being um, deficient in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. 
that the division of the northern and the southern kingdom um, actually lent itself toward um, a deficiency in the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit within Israel's national identity. Um, That says something about God's view of, of fracturing and schism. Now, this is, I'm not going to chase that rabbit, but this is a very um, interesting dynamic within the Bible that it was the unified kingdom itself where God's power was most manifestly present. But after the splitting of the northern and the southern kingdom, you have the northern kingdom um, that had its heyday in the ninth century and the kings of the, uh, what's called the Omride dynasty. So this is King Omri and his children. And we might not think of this because most of the Bible, the Old Testament, is presented from a, a pro-Judah perspective. The perspective of most of the Bible is from the viewpoint of the southern kingdom and the centrality of the Davidic throne and the Davidic promises there in Judah. The centrality of worship taking place primarily in Samaria. And if you think these theological um, um, challenges uh, were just... went away, just think about the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well. I mean, here Jesus is with the woman at the well, and what what does she want to debate with Jesus? Where's the proper place to worship? You all say Jerusalem. We say up here in this area. Um, So this religious and national divide had a kind of residue within the life of Israel that even made itself present in the day of Jesus. Um, so the most of the Old Testament is presented from the standpoint of a pro-Judah perspective. Um, but that perspective really doesn't lend itself to reality on the ground in the ninth century. The southern kingdom was a kind of blip on the screen of really, I guess, geopolitical realities during the day. Now, the Neo-Assyrian Empire wasn't all that interested in this, I don't know, this sort of small a bumpkin of a kingdom called Judah. Uh, But the northern kingdom of Israel was very well respected and known throughout the the whole known world at the time. Um, In fact, during the ninth century, this was was, um, the northern kingdom in their heyday. They were referred to in the annals of Assyria, uh, King Omri. Never in the annals of Assyria is the southern kingdom referred to. Um, Judah and Jerusalem, never referred to. But the northern kingdom was serious business, a serious geopolitical reality in the ninth century and into, and into the eighth century as well. We'll see this, I don't know if today, maybe next week, but we'll see this when we turn to the book of Amos. Because Amos is dealing with a situation in the northern kingdom where people are overly optimistic. Um, there's a, there's a a deep sense of national and religious self-confidence that's going on um, in the northern kingdom. And one senses that when you go even a hundred years before the time of Amos, back into the ninth century in that Amri dynasty, um, this was the northern kingdom at their greatest, a significant, strong empire. And yet, that's not the perspective the Bible is giving us. The perspective that the Bible is giving us is of a place that's covenantally and religiously defunct. That's, that's the viewpoint that's, that's being given. So when we come to um, Joel, and we think about Joel's placement, you have Hosea, and then you have Joel, and then you have Amos. Hosea and Amos were both, both prophets to the northern kingdom, and Hosea and Amos were both prophets in the 8th century. 
Um, Amos was probably a little bit older than Hosea, um, and that's always an interesting feature, frankly, the minor prophets, that Hosea comes first and not Amos, but I think he comes first for an important reason. He's laying the theological claims of what we're going to engage as we work through the rest of the books of, of the minor prophets. So that raises all kinds of fun questions. Why Joel here? And I think Joel's presence here between Hosea and Amos even though Joel is most likely a book that is, can be dated to a much uh, later time, maybe even the post-exilic period, Joel's placement here gives us a sense of what the performance of repentance, or put in other terms, what repentance actually looks like on the ground when the people of God turn back to God both individually and in mass. You remember the Hosea ends with what? This call to repentance. Take words with you. Return with all of your heart. And then we come to Joel. And Joel uses a particular episode in Judah's life here in the south. We don't know much about it. But with some episode about a locust plague that had come and done significant damage uh, to the crops, to the agricultural infrastructure of Judah, that it was so significant that everyone must have known what Joel was talking about, except for us. Right? We don't know. All we know is that there was a moment in time when there was a significant um, loss because of, are you ready for this? Joel chapter 1 verse 4, because of the cutting locusts, because of the swarming locusts, because of the hopping locusts, and because of the destroying locusts. So this, these breeds, these species of locusts came in and did significant damage uh, to, um, to Judah at a particular moment in time. And Joel uses this episode as an instance, as an illustration of what the day of the Lord is like. What does it mean when God visits his people in a moment where his presence is the actual indictment of their sin? God's presence among the, in their midst is an indictment of their sin. Um, I, I, we force our Hebrew students at where I teach, um, and they're all in this right now. Pray for them. Um, they have to learn paradigms, right? This is the worst part of language learning. They have to learn paradigms. Um, you know about this, Mrs. Yeager. Um, you know, so they're, they're having to learn uh, the Hebrew perfect verb, Right, which is, it goes pakad, pakada, and they have, to, I mean, they, I, want, I tell them, I want you to dream in these paradigms. I want your spouse to wake you up and to hear you saying these things in your sleep. Well, this is completely an aside here, but the Greek paradigms that students have to learn are based off of a Greek word that never shows up in the New Testament. I remember this when I took Greek in my own day, be, working so hard at luo, luois, loe, luamen, luete, luusi, learning all these paradigms, and then getting into the New Testament and realizing all that work I did on those paradigms, and that word never shows up. Some mean trick that some Greek professors played back in the day. The Hebrew uh, verb that our students have to learn is the Hebrew verb pakad, and it's a verb that shows up all over the place. And it's instrumental in the minor prophets, in Hosea, Joel, and in Amos. And the verb means to visit, to appoint. Um, the day of the Lord's visitation. The day when the Lord shows up. The day when the Lord's appearance becomes manifest. And what we're going to see in the book of Joel and the book of Amos 
in an overly optimistic mood, especially in Amos, the prophet says, why do you want the Lord to appear? You think the day of the Lord's coming is going to be a day of light. It will not be a day of light. It's going to be a day of darkness. And here you have Joel who's leaning into this. I think Joel, by the way, has read Amos and Hosea and is familiar with Amos and Hosea. Um, Joel's prophecy is riddled with references to previous prophetic voices. So that when we have this locust day that's coming, uh, the, the, the locust that has come, we also recognize that the locusts stand as a kind of placeholder, an illustration, an allegory, if you will, of what all future coming days of the Lord might look like. And that's why when we get into chapter 2, which is, I think, such a central chapter, here you have um, this presentation of what the day of the Lord will look like. Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, Who's the them? Well, again, it's not all that clear. The them is a reference back to the locusts, but the locusts are also a kind of illustration or allegory of the coming armies of either Assyria or Babylon. Whatever instrument that God uses as the means of his judgment on sin in the world, that's the reference here of the them. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. This is Joel in Joel chapter 2 reading Amos chapter 5. Um, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who ex- executes his word is powerful. And here's the great question. Who, uh, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it? So this is Joel, like Amos, who's pressing on an exposed nerve of what one might think of as political or religious overconfidence. And he's saying the day of the Lord will be an awesome, a great, a terrible day. And here's the great question. And it's the question, in a sense, that we heard asked in our lectionary reading this morning, in our gospel reading, from the rich young man. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Who can endure the coming day of the Lord? And now the prophet gives us an answer. And this is central because this is Joel who's, I think, allowing the bud of Hosea's ending to open up into a full flower of repentance. This is what it looks like. Verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. Return to me with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So this is, a, this is a call right out of the gate of returning to the Lord. What, what is repentance? It's an about face. It's a recognition of who we are in light of the glory and the grandeur and the beauty of who God is. It's a call to self-knowledge. And this is one of, the, I think, the great features of John Calvin's Institutes. And if you ever get a chance to read those, I, I encourage you at least to read the first chapter, if nothing else. Because what does Calvin say? Calvin says we really don't know God without a knowledge of ourselves. And we really don't know ourselves without a genuine knowledge of God. The knowledge of self and the knowledge of God are central uh, to Christian reflection on what, on what it means to be. Who are you, God, and who am I? 
And both of those questions, which are the questions of the ages, both of those questions can only be answered in light of each other. God, I must know who you are truly. And the knowledge of you helps me understand who I truly am. Now, I'm, I'm going to go off script for a second. I'll say that has to be one of the more pertinent questions that's facing us in the current moment. I would say really the whole of the 20th century on the far side of the rich optimism of the 19th century that then gave birth to two massive world wars and so many problems on, at least in the Western world, but all over. Uh, that kind of optimism that you found in the philosophical and political worlds of the 19th century has all run amok. And the literature of the day in the 20th century begins, I think, to lean into that. And what's the question that begins to be asked in very pertinent and crucial ways? What does it mean to be a self? What does it mean to be? What does it mean to have purpose? You like Franz Kafka and the metamorphosis of the young man into a cockroach. What does it even mean to, to be? And this is the question that even the prophets are forcing us to think through, but they're, they're giving us a proper orientation. You can't begin to even answer that question about what it means to be a self and what it means to be apart from wrestling with the self-same question or the equally important question, namely, God, who are you? So here we're called to return and return to the Lord with all of our hearts, with everything that's inside of us, what makes us be, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And here we have a little jab at the dangers of religious externalism. Verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, our tendency, like the rich young man, right, is to ask, well, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And here the prophet says, this is not about religious ritual. This is not an attendance to a certain kind of list-keeping. This is a recognition of who you truly are that goes down to the core of your being. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Why? Because we can return to the Lord your God because he's gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Verse 14, who knows whether he will turn, not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Here, the prophet Joel reflects on an episode that many of you have thought and heard of before and and read, and that's the episode where Moses is having an encounter with God on Mount Sinai, Exodus 33 and 34. And in the middle of this engagement between Moses and God on Mount Sinai, on Mount Horeb, uh, God breaks the conversation off. Remember this? And he says, we're done talking, you need to go down to, and this is always scary in the Bible when God uses prepositions that tend to distance things, he says, you need to go down to your people, Moses. Um, because they've, um, you remember what's happened, they, they've taken the, the gold and they've created the golden calves and they're identifying the, calf, the calves as the God that delivered them from Egypt. And then when Moses comes down, he hears what the Bible says is the sound of war. Let me just say, that's a very gentle translation of what the sound is that, the, that Moses hears. It's a really kind of NC-17 word, really. What he hears is something that's, that's um, uh, gut-wrenching and troubling and disturbing and ugly. 
And he sees it, and what, you know, Moses breaks the, the commandment, the, the, the two tablets of the law, and, and then he goes down and he has this interlocution with this, this little conversation with, with Aaron. Um, and I, I love it. You gotta you got give Aaron points for creativity, right? He says, I don't know how these things showed up. We just throw, threw some gold in the fire, and boom, out came these uh, two calves. And, you know, the, the, the plausibility on that didn't seem to go very far. And I mean, it's a horrible scene. It's a horrible scene. And what does God say to Moses? He says, I'll kill all of them. We will, we will do away with them. And Moses, I'll just start over with you. Let's get this thing right from the, from the ground up. But Moses intercedes and he prays. And by the way, on the basis of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20, God would have had, had every right to do that. Because the way in which the Decalogue is presented is either or. And they broke the first commandment right out of the gate. And if you've spent some time thinking about the Ten Commandments, you'll remember that the Ten Commandments, the first one is the commandment by which all the other ones are to be viewed. Get that one wrong, everything else goes off the tracks. You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God first and foremost. That, that's central to all the other claims um, that come on the horizontal level about um, honoring your father and your mother and not bearing false witness and not committing adultery. If you don't get the vertical right, you'll never get the horizontal right. And so he says, let's, let's start all over. And then Moses intercedes on their behalf. And then God does something that's so central to the Old Testament's depiction of God's being. And why it's so important to Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and all the way through the minor prophets. God gives Moses an exposition of his own name. I want to tell you who I am, Moses. And he comes down and he says, Adonai, Adonai, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah. And then he gives this list of attributes, 13 attributes of that, that are God giving, it's remarkable actually, an exposition of the significance of his own name. And it's mercy and severity. But with mercy far outweighing severity, if one were to do a kind of quantitative analysis of the attributes that God gives of his own name. And those attributes that you find in Exodus 34 begin to make their way through the minor prophets like a, like a red thread that begin to hold these 12 prophets together in an internal uh, conversation. And that's what happens here in Joel, or now in chapter 2, Joel, right out of the gate in the minor prophet says, here's the reason why you can repent and turn to God with the confidence of knowing who He is. Because He's gracious. He's quick to forgive. He's slow to anger. Um, he always meets you in his mercy. Now here you have this language that's used here. Return to the Lord. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. In other words, God will pull back from pouring out the judgment that we deserve. That's just his character. And in our language here, his property is always to have mercy. Now, Martin Luther would call that God's um, normal attributes, what you'd ex how you would expect God to act. And Luther would say his judgment is a kind of alien norm. It's, it's not him acting according to his normal mode of being. Um, so here you have a call um, to repent on the basis of God's, of God's character, raising the question, who knows? Maybe he'll relent. Now, why is this so interesting in the Minor Prophets? It's interesting because here in Joel chapter 2, we have the prophet speaking to the people of God. This is covenant language. This is in-house language. It's family reunion language. Um, 
And when we turn to the book of Jonah, and it raises all kinds of fascinating questions, but we find these verses right here, Joel chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we find them repeated almost verbatim. It's almost a carbon copy in, jo- in Jonah chapter 3 and then into Jonah chapter 4 when the king of Nineveh, the Assyrian king, um, the wrong guy, uses the self-same language to describe the character of Israel's God calling on a national repentance of a foreign nation, not the in-group, not the covenant people of God, the out-group, the Assyrians, and matter of fact, the Assyrians who are the great enemy of Israel, the northern kingdom. And we find the king of Assyria appealing to the character of Israel's God as the basis for why they should repent and in repentance recognize that who knows, maybe the Lord will relent. And what does God do in Jonah? He relents. And when you get to Jonah chapter 4, we find out why Jonah was so upset in the first place. And you know why Jonah was so upset? He says, I knew you would do this. It's just like you to act in accord with your character, is what Jonah is saying. Um, And and, and by the way, we don't know in Jonah chapter 1 why Jonah flees to Tarshish, but we know in Jonah chapter 4 now he tells us, I went to Tarshish because I knew this is how you would act. And then Jonah quotes the attributes from Exodus 34, because you're gracious and you're compassionate. You're slow to anger. So here we see in Joel what the basis is of the confidence of not just Israel, the covenanted people of God, but of, if we bring Jonah into view, all of the nations, the whole world, what's the hope of repentance? The hope of repentance is a recognition of the character of God that's quick to have mercy, that's quick um, to forgive. And let me, let's, well, let's start time here. Oh yeah, I've got to land the plane. If you look here at the Joel chapter 2, verse 27, I wanted you to see this. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. For what purpose? You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. If you'll remember back in Hosea, I think we talked a little bit about this last week. Hosea chapter 4 says the people of God perish for lack of knowledge. They don't know who I am. They don't know my character. They don't know my disposition toward being merciful to them. They don't know who I am. In Joel chapter 2 verse 27 here is actually quoting Exodus chapter 10 verse 2. And what plague do you find happening in Exodus chapter 10? This is interesting. Joel knows his Bible. The plague that you find in Exodus chapter 10 is the locust plague. And isn't it interesting that it's the locust plague here in Joel that Joel is leaning into to use as an illustration of God's character of judgment, but also, and more importantly, his character of mercy. And if you go back and read Exodus chapter 10 verse 2, this is what Moses says is the purpose of the plague of the locusts. So that you will know the Lord your God. So Joel is reading the Bible carefully throughout his prophecy here. What's the purpose of the locust plague? What's the purpose of God's visitation of his people? What's the purpose of God's engagement with them in the day of the Lord? So that you will know who I am. 
that I am the Lord your God. And there is, there is no one else. So the central theme here of the day of the Lord, as coming, as having come, as near, as afterward, is a call for the people of God and really for humanity in its totality to come to terms with the fact that Israel's God is a God who is just and holy and other, who is not to be trifled with. Joel chapter 1, he roars, I mean Joel chapter 3, he roars from Mount Zion. And yet it's also a recognition, if we can quote the end of Psalm chapter 2, that those who are blessed are those who take refuge in him. And why in the world would we find any refuge in the lion of the tribe of Judah? How could we find refuge in a lion? We find refuge in a lion because we recognize the character of who he is. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's quick to forgive. It's his default mode of being. If you just give him an opportunity, he returns to you in quickness and in, and in mercy and in grace because that's just who he is. And if you'll know something, and this gets into kind of theology land, and we won't chase this, but one of the unique things about God, as opposed to you and me, is that God's being and his actions are the same thing. God has to act in accord with who he is. And who is he? He's a God whose property um, is always to have mercy. So, Lord, thank you for Joel and the way in which it expresses this profound truth about your identity about your character, about the fact that you are a God who is not to be trifled with, and yet at the same time you are a God who welcomes repentant sinners into your arms to find refuge in the coming day of the Lord. Lord, who can survive that day? It's awesome and it's terrible. Those who turn to you with broken hearts, with weeping and fasting, who recognize who you are, a God whose property is to have mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.